Rebecca Bray and Steve Lambert of the Center for Artistic Activism are two super nice people. They're artists, they're activists, they're more than that. They're humans who really give a damn about what's ahead. And in this time of COVID, they have created a new organization called Free the Vaccine, freethevaccine.org, which is hundreds of artists and activists and researchers around the world working together to ensure that when that vaccine arrives, it is free at the point of delivery. Because really, what's the point of, of a vaccine if a big chunk of the world doesn't have access to it? So in today's podcast, our conversation on Nice Work, a super nice club podcast, by the way, you're going to listen to Steve and Rebecca talk about their history as activists, some of the projects they've done around the world that have had powerful impacts, and what you can do to get involved with an effort, a very, very, very important effort. If you're feeling a little bit helpless about COVID, most of us are, not anymore, not with freethevaccine.org. This is something you can get involved in right now, today, as soon as you listen to this podcast. As a matter of fact, by listening to my rambling, preemptive words here, you're already getting involved. Without further ado, Steve and Rebecca. Rebecca and Steve, thank you so much for giving all of us your time and your expertise today. Welcome to Nice Work. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks, for, thank Todd. You. Yeah. And tell us where you're at real quick. You're in different places. I see you. People listening don't see you. You both look great. And you sound mellifluous. Is that the word? Oh, How do you say that? Excellent. That sounds like yeah. a bad thing, like evil, like malicious. Where are you at? I'm in upstate New York, about two hours north of New York City, in the Catskill Mountains. Nice. And I'm in Beacon, New York, which is just over an hour north of New York City on the Hudson River, in the Hudson Valley. So you're both in New York where everybody is sort of escaping to, right? Yes. Yes, we are. We are in the good, happy part of New York right now. Well, there's our I'm share working. of reckless Republicans in each of our areas who, oh. Oh, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to remind you that the Super Nice Club is an apolitical organization. <laughs> I'm just describing what is around. I'm, I'm just, it doesn't matter. I'm kidding. What's the Democrat? I'm not daring. There's an alliterative compare. Uh, dangerous. Dangerous. A dangerous Democrat. Dangerous yeah. Democrats. All right. Reckless Republican, dangerous Democrats. See, we're, we're coming up with moneymakers. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you two work together at the Center for Artistic Activism. Steve, you co-founded it with Stephen Duncombe, correct? True. And Rebecca, you are the director, the director of all things. It's a fact. It's a fact. <laughs> and you're both dangerous. So Rebecca, um, this is really interesting to me. I don't know anything about it because I haven't asked you about this before. You used to work at the Smithsonian where you were the chief of experience design. I mean, that kind of sounds like the coolest job ever. Was it? Or was it just it was, sound title ever? It was, it was super fun. Yes. And it was not at the Smithsonian writ large, which is like 29 museums make up the Smithsonian. It was at the Natural History Museum in DC. Well, that's the best part. It was. It's, right? it's the second most visited museum in the world after the Louvre. It's like wow. millions of people go there. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was a super fun job. I basically made like games and stuff about science for mm -hmm. people and made like weird art science projects and tried to get people super engaged in totally new ways that were not just exhibits and things have behind ever, class. Have you ever, either of you, Steve, you lived out on the West Coast in the Bay Area. Did you guys ever go to the, the Museum of Jurassic Lab? No, the lab at the Exploratorium where they oh, make yeah. all I don't even oh want God. to talk about the Museum of Jurassic Technology because that is my favorite museum on the planet. Oh, so I we're not allowed to talk about it? It's too good. Yeah, it would be a whole different podcast. I just, it would. I you should have, a have books that. On it. It, 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 it's, it's the first thing I did when I moved to LA a few months ago. Oh, my God. I bet. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah, so that kind of thing is totally my inspiration, both the Exploratorium and the Museum of Jurassic Technology. So I was trying to bring some of that weird creative spirit into the Smithsonian, which is, was hard in some ways because it's a very old, venerable institution with a little bit of elitism, you know, around that, but trying to be creative and fun in that space, which was great. 
a total sidebar having nothing to do with vaccines. I'm just too excited now. If you're listening to this and you live within three or 4,000 miles of Los Angeles, <laughs> Museum of Jurassic Technology, just you won't find anything about it online except for just reviews where people are sort of dumbstruck. The website won't tell you anything. Just trust me and go. And yeah, talk it, about I will personally refund your admission price. Like, okay. talk about somebody following their passion fully yeah. all the way. That is all the way there. You know? All right. Before that, you were the co founder and technology director of Submersible Design, which was yes. a New York City based interactive design company. You had big clients. Yeah. Big clients. Again, museums. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, I went to grad school at NYU at the interactive telecommunications program, which is like a funny program that combined art and technology and social justice, basically, at its best. And so it was a lot about how do you um, help people have amazing participatory experiences. And so it was a lot of thinking about how how to create weird um, art <laughs> and technology that uh, engages people in deep new ways. So coming out of that, I went and helped was helping museums as a consultant make those kinds of experiences. And before that, this is kind of the biggest thing. I, I don't know if you realize it's the biggest thing you've done, but you produced the video that starts to this day more fights on Facebook than anything else I've ever seen. Really? I've never <laughs> heard it intro in that way. That's yeah. funny. Everybody, Rebecca is one of the producers of The Matrix, which is an online animation about factory farming, which is not a cute thing. And that animation, seriously, I start a lot of Facebook fights, which is why I started Super Nice Pub, because I'm trying to do less of that, 10% <laughs> less. Mm -hmm. But The Matrix, first of all, it's worth watching. Secondly, people have strong opinions about it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, that's great. I think that's why it's successful. You know, the way that that started was, so I I went to undergrad and I was interested in art and media and also I studied sociology. So it's always, I've always been interested in this area where how do people interact with each other and how do they interact with each other in the best possible ways to make a better world? And yeah. how does that intersect with media and culture creation? And so I went and worked for a nonprofit that was working on factory farming as their art director and web developer. And they were just putting out all of these images of factory farms, like, you know, hundreds of pigs crowded together, half dead chickens. And they were saying, we can't get anybody to really pay attention to this stuff. Like nobody really wants to look at these pictures for some reason. And so we, myself and someone else there said, maybe we should try to make something funny. And of course, some people in the organization were like, you can't make anything funny about this horrific stuff. But we went for it and we were like, let's use some popular culture and really twist it and make something really goofy and weird with it. And so we made The Matrix, which is a spoof of The Matrix, but all about factory farming. And it when we put it out there, it was one of those videos in the er very early 2000s that went viral. It was just a like three or four minute flash animation and a million people watched it in the first couple of months or something like that. It was, it was astounding to all of us who made it, but it really showed me a lot about how you can capitalize on really using pop culture for um, a very deep message and for getting out actually like pretty complex information about social or environmental justice, justice issues in a way that's still fun and that people yeah. like. And it lasts, right? Yeah. It's still, going. it's still going. So you've been involved in video activism, creating uh, art activism for years and years, as have you, Steve. I, I met you, Steve, we met years and years ago in an alley in San Francisco. Is that right? Does that sound weird? Yeah, I want to say <laughs> maybe in 2000, maybe 20 years ago. Yeah. And you were kind of a big deal then in the San Francisco art activism area. I, I remember your thing had already happened. You know, remember that? That was amazing. Yeah, we worked yeah. on a hillside project. Oh, and we worked together at, uh, on the Post Carbon Institute project, maybe seven or seven years ago or so. Where um, yeah. you really turned that into something special. Thirty thousand copies of oversized newspaper delivered all over North America, featuring well, we had like ten or twelve artists highlighting key concepts about energy. Now, factory farming is is tough to get people's head around, but getting people to understand energy and energy scarcity and the math behind it on a, you know, to where we can demand 
good decisions from legislators, you know, as an informed public, that was a big task. Really hard, hard to make sexy. You know, Steve helps try to do that through pop art, basically, you know, contemporary art. And who, you, you your partner? Packard. Packard. Packard, Packard Jennings. Jennings. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I love his stuff. We work together on that. And your work has been shown all over the world. Documentary films, books, heavily, highly collected. I have yeah, I had someone too. tell me they were on a United Airlines flight and they saw me on, in one of the movies on their flight once. That was to oh, me like a level of achievement, you know. Yeah, I could yeah. be seen on an airplane. <laughs> um, and you presented, at least it says on the web on your website that you presented at the United Nations several times. You often work on capitalism, what it is, what it means, what it can do. I know it's kind of a touchy word, people out there, when you hear somebody and they, they work on capitalism. You know, you think that maybe he's, uh, you know, a wants chump. to end it everything that you know. No, but no, Steve really <laughs> takes a look into what it is, what it can be, you know, what the, the strains of it are. I, you did look it up guys. I think if you just Google, does capitalism work for you? You'll probably find it. This giant sign that Steve's, you've taken it all over the world, right? Yeah. There at one point were three different ones, one in Australia, one in Europe and one in the United States. That's pretty much all over the world. Yeah. yeah Sorry. India. Um, Canada. It's a big place, yeah. Yeah, I did shark um, Canada. I think I don't even remember. It will next far. year. You're not far from Canada. You can cart it right over the border. <laughs> yeah, let's put it on a skateboard. So, all of that said, what are a couple of the activist projects you worked on that, for you, have been the most like the the uh, the Venn diagram where they overlap of fun and impact? I hold myself to a very high bar, so there's like very few, but um, one that like there's a few things where days later i was like wow that actually was really good usually <laughs> after i get it done i'm like all right so next thing <laughs> but two of those one was uh the new york times special edition which is a newspaper that we made in 2008 after barack obama was elected that announced the end of the wars in iraq and in afghanistan and like 14 pages of good news and it was uh we distributed 85,000 copies in New York City, and it was a huge international news story because we made a fake New York Times. But it was like a real outline of what we wanted, which was nice. And as opposed to sort of the Bush era protests of like, stop this and no, end this and things like that. So it sort of both was a vision of what we wanted in a way that of a way of showing that that was positive and affirmative instead of counter and adversarial. Now, did you ever end up hearing whether or not uh, the White House yes. read your paper? Yeah. So there were a few different things I heard. One is I, I, I wrote a note to Reggie Love, who was Obama's bodyguard, who, <laughs> who was a college roommate of a friend. And he's like, I'm going to get this to Reggie Love, and he's going to get it to Obama. He's like, so write a note to Reggie Love, and then write a note to Obama. And I was like, what? You know, and right. and it wasn't like three days or even you know, three hours before I knew this was going to happen. There, I was just at this thing, and they're like, Steve, give us these papers. This is what we're going to do. And so I had to figure out what to write on a three by five card to Barack Obama, which is like much harder than you'd ever imagine. Like Did you write holding really a pencil insane? being like, no, no, I, I was like, I, it, I found a photo that I took of it before they took it away. And it, I was not embarrassed. And I, and I thought it was like sort of friendly and casual. And, you know, it's like, Hey, it looks like you got a big job ahead of you or something. I hope this provides some plans, <laughs> something like that, you know? And, um, and yeah. So there were some cool things like that that happened. And then like, I know that, who is the secretary of the press for the peanut farmer president? Wow. This Who's is the the press for Jimmy Carter? You're asking for Jimmy us that? Carter. Yeah. Wow. And then he had shows, Bill Moyers. Bill Moyers was the secretary of press. Oh, for, yeah. that, that is the network in my brain of those connections <laughs> that I had to put together. Anyway, Bill Moyers held it up at a conference and said, like, this is a great example of what journalism could be. That was also a very nice thing to hear about. Mm. 
anyway, made that. And then I would say the other example is a project with the Center for Artistic Activism that was uh, in South Africa with sex workers. And we basically said, like, what do you want to get done? And then we made 12 different projects around this event, which was the 2016 International AIDS Conference that they were attending. And we were sort of, the way I describe it is like, we were their Q to their double O agents, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we designed all this stuff and built it and then um, and came up with strategies with them and then rolled it out. And I made 12 projects because I thought like 10 wouldn't work and two might work. And I didn't know which ones they would be. So we just had to make a lot, but almost all of them worked and were like tremendously successful. And it moved that whole, their movement took like these great steps forward after that. Their words, like that's what they told me after, which was great to hear. Wow. That's great. When was that? That was in 2016. And so just for an example of like impact, Cyril Mm -hmm. Ramaphosa, who's the current prime minister, president, can't remember, leader of South Africa, has done a total 180 on his position around decriminalizing sex work. And they say that what we did then helped contribute to that. That's great. I I think it'd be great, Steve, if you tell a little story about the clock, just because it, you know, when we talk about artistic activism, sometimes people aren't sure what that means, but I think it's a good example. Yeah, so they think of things like posters or, you know, performances about torture or something, you know, like take your political issue and a medium and then you just make that the subject of the artistic medium. But we think about it in a much more integrated way. And so um, one of the things that the Sex Worker Education and Advocacy Task Force talked about was that they wanted to make sure that they were mentioned in every session, right? That where it was relevant. If if the topic of of sex work came up or was like relevant, that they would be mentioned. Because they were excluded from many conferences that came the years before for like visa reasons in the United States because they're considered criminals. And then in Australia, like they just couldn't get support to go there. So they were underrepresented. So how then our question was okay, how do we get that the people on the stage in a crowd of literally 15,000 people, how do we get them to change their speeches and mention sex work when they didn't mm-hmm. plan to? And so the, the natural, in that context, the natural answer is you get a big banner, you storm the stage and you yell, and then you f- sort of force them to talk about it. And the reason that's a natural idea in that context is every year people do that. Like they're AIDS activists. And so I can show you pictures going back decades of them on, of different people on stage with a big banner yelling. And so I was like, if we do that, no one's going to remember it. It's just not going to work, you know? So what we did. Kind of alienating. I mean, the audience and then the people on stage would be upset with you, the activists and are less receptive, right? Yeah. You're put at a disadvantage because you're interrupting. And then also, it, depending on who the speaker is, it can be seen as kind of impolite. Like the first speaker that night was Nelson Mandela's grandson. Like you're going to charge the stage and yell at him, <laughs> you know? Not a good, not a good look. Yeah, yeah. So what we did was we made this clock, this digital clock that was a speaker timer, right? So whenever anyone would start speaking, we'd start the clock, and the clock would count up. But around it, so to them, it was like a service because they had a certain amount of time to do their speech. And we were holding up this clock in the back of the audience. But it also said, you've been speaking for this amount of time without mentioning sex work. or And then it says, yeah, without a mention of sex work. So if you read it real quick, it just said, mention sex work. Those are the biggest words on it. And when they did, we would stop the clock and close it. And it said, thank you. It took them a while to figure out what it was and about 40 minutes in the first speaker mentioned sex work and we had created so much tension in the audience that the whole place just exploded in, a, in applause because and, you were wow. running around this room or walking around this room of fifteen thousand people holding up this clock and so the whole audience had seen it that yeah. whole time and we're kind of it was like this anticipation and then when somebody mentioned it it was it's an amazing 
video, like watching, I wasn't there and watching the video of this, the audience just explodes literally for 30 seconds is cheering and clapping. It's incredible. Yeah. And then everyone after that starts mentioning sex work and has to stop their speech so people can applaud. And, you know, so that's an example of, I think, our approach that had never been done before. This sort of innovative thing, but also really not just friendly for the sake of being friendly, but sort of more psychologically, like thinking about what are the dynamics and how do we make it as easy as possible for people to do the right thing. That's a great story. And I'm going to watch the video of that one. Did you, did you reset the clock after every mention? Yeah. Well, after every yeah. speaker. So if they mentioned yeah. it, we just sort of, we would go away. Okay. <laughs> Got it. So that is a very, that's much more than just painting a poster about an issue and right. plastering all over town. It's, I mean, Rebecca, your expertise in immersive experiential uh, work, right. I'm sure it comes into play there. So that's a nice tee up, finally, to the freethevaccine.org effort that I would love for you guys to explain. So I'm going to read a little bit from the website. And then if you guys would just please tell us about the goals, who's involved in the project, how it works, and most significantly, when we can expect, like what day exactly, free COVID vaccines for everyone <laughs> in the world. Okay, because right. I think if you can put that out there, the podcast numbers are going to shoot way up, okay? <laughs> from freethevaccine.org, the problem is this. When we do have a vaccine, will everyone have access to it? Without affordable access for everyone across the globe, the vaccine can't really do its job. Already, governments around the world are investing billions in taxpayer funds into the research and development of diagnostic tools, treatments, and a vaccine for COVID-19. The virus is now a pandemic, yet experience tells us once the vaccine is discovered, pharmaceutical corporations will want us to pay again to acquire it. This means that payment will be demanded for something already paid for from public funds. It also means that not everyone will be able to afford access. Ow, that's, I don't like that, which is why also I'm involved with you guys as much as I can be in this project. And I'm, I'm really grateful that you are allowing me to be involved with this tremendous group of people that you've assembled. Yeah. So tell us more. Yeah, well, we, um, in March, mid-March, we were talking to a friend and colleague because we, we do these trainings all over the world with people who are in advocacy groups or artists and they want to accomplish something and we help them figure out how to use art and activism and I mean art and culture to do their work better, right? And so um, through all of that, through our alumni network, we were talking to um, this woman, Marith Basie, who is the executive director of North America, uh, the North American chapter of universities allied for essential medicines, UAEM. And they do great work all over the world, really pressuring publicly funded institutions to make all of the stuff, all the medicines that they're creating accessible and affordable for the public, right? Because most of the research that leads to medications comes through taxpayer dollars. And so it should be free and accessible. And so they are organizing, especially university students and alumni, to pressure universities to um, make all their research so that it results in affordable stuff. And so we were talking to Merith about doing a different project that involved a bus tour. It was going to be very cool, involving lots of people gathered in spaces together. And of course, in mid-March, we said, okay, we can't do this, but let's do something. And we realized when we started talking about the different expert, the expertise and the um, networks that both of our organizations brought brought to the problem that together we could do something kind of significant. And so we decided let's create a global movement of, of people who are experimenting with new kinds of advocacy that works in this weird pandemic time that we're in that really pressures institutions and governments to make these not just the vaccine, but treatments and diagnostics accessible to everyone. And the way that we're gonna do this is we have to be inventive. You know, traditional advocacy is not going to work now, especially. And we have this opportunity to mobilize lots of different kinds of people who are at home feeling powerless to come together and experiment to, um, to do things differently. And so that's what we did when we were like, let's just do it. We didn't have funding or anything. We just said, let's just do it. It was mid-March. 
And so we went for it. Um, and then, well, Steve, let's see, you can pick up the thread. We, Yeah, so we, we brought in about, I think we had 700 something people that were interested. We accepted 300 applications and um, from people from 29 different countries. And we split them up into small groups um, so that they could get to know each other and work together. And we would give them, we still actually every week give them these different missions um, that we model after Mission Impossible. And uh, it's to, you know, reach out to a university in a creative way. Like what, what's a gift that you can give them that also asks for them to sign this thing called the Open COVID Pledge? And the Open COVID Pledge is um, a sort of framework, legal, some legal structures for people who are working on COVID research to make sure that that research is not uh, is not is shared. It's not exclusively licensed to one company, but it has the ability to be able to be shared with multiple companies. So you can have a generic version, you can have a brand name version of a drug, for example. Um, so anyway, yeah, a lot of our missions have to do with the Open COVID Pledge. We have people in these small groups, and then they um, work together and get to know each other. And we have a whole private online site that we created um, that is totally independent of social networks. So people feel like they can propose sort of what might later seem like foolish ideas, you know, really brainstorm and and um, not have any fear of making doing a sort of public performance and uh, and develop things together. Yeah, what we wanted to do was create something that would work pretty differently. It, traditional advocacy can be pretty slow. Again, relying on old methods like storming a stage with a banner or megaphone. It yeah. um, you know be pretty top down, like the strategy is invented in a conference room and kind of distributed. And so this is very very driven by the people who are involved, and we very much try to reach out to artists, creatives, people who have been activists and people who haven't, and mix up these groups so that um, the groups, the small groups of people who are working on these actions are doing, are coming from really different places. And so hopefully generating lots of different kinds of ideas. And we also just like kind of push people to like get out there and do it and then analyze it and refine um, and don't do too much planning ahead of time, you know? And so, so it is, it's fast, it's, um, experimental, it's, um, very people-driven, bottom-up, and we're excited about it. Like, we've seen some really exciting things start to emerge. We've only been going for seven weeks or something, um, and just the, the kind of pace of it is astounding, especially the people we're working with at UAEM, at Universities Allied for Essential Medicines, are saying we've been able to accomplish in these past few weeks what normally takes us years as an organization. Um, and so we're, um, we're looking at how, you know, not only how we, how we continue this work for the length of um, this pandemic, but also how does this become a methodology and a platform that could be used for other advocacy work. That's great. So do you have, have you used that, that, that platform that you're using now the, uh, for the conversations? Is it, or is this the first rollout of that? What is that called? It's, um, it's like open source. It's an open yeah, source. Open source software called Discourse. And it's basically like, a, it's a, basically a really good web forum. And um, we set it up. We have used it before. We use it with our sort of alumni network that we have. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we were familiar with it. And um, yeah, it's it's nice because it's like, like I said, we can make it private and secure. And when you're working with activists around the world, that becomes a little bit more important. And it's more than just activists in there. You also have yes. students, researchers. It's at a really really interesting group of people that from what i've seen and i'm just really working in in uh, what is it you gotta remember otter otter three yes which is our yeah. southern california yeah yeah i'm in otter three these people are amazing they really yeah. are it's a great group and you've had already or we've had with the open covid pledge some pretty big hitters sign on do you want to get into that a little bit yeah so when we started 
the open COVID pledge didn't exist. It sort of came online about two weeks into our project. And um, about a week or two after that, and this is on, this is their work, the open COVID pledge folks, but they got Microsoft, Amazon, Hewlett Packard, Sandia National Labs, there was another big one, Facebook, mm-hmm. <laughs> all to sign on and, and, and sign the open COVID pledge. We have some universities. It's funny, like, you know, what these, how conservative the University of Melbourne can seem compared to Facebook and Amazon. Mm-hmm. These major multinational corporations are willing to do this, but you're, you're slow walking it. You know, that to me right. is, is kind of shocking. So some people might not understand why we would want Facebook or Hewlett Packard or these other tech companies to sign a pledge on to, on the vaccine. Can you explain that role that is sort of a, a not often thought about role? Well, it's not it's not just for the vaccine, right? It's for any equipment, any anything that is helping with the virus. So anything that those companies invent or put out there, the idea is that you're pledging that you're that it's going to be accessible. You're going to make sure that it's affordable to people. And these are their partners. I mean, Hewlett Packard works and provides technology for the majority of all of the yeah. universities and and uh, pharmaceutical companies that are working on this. So having their partners exert right. their soft pressure is the idea. Right. Which I, and a lot I of times the university hesitancy is like, well, we need to make partnerships with private industry in order to make sure that these drugs that we're developing are actually produced. And it's like, well, yeah, but like, look at these corporations are willing to do this also. And I think what we found is that a lot of universities seem to really underestimate the power that they have. And in one, being the holders of this information and this research, and that they can really, they're in a position to negotiate that no one else is in. And to say, and universities have done this, like Yale and uh, is is the oldest example. But to say, we will sell this to you, but we're not going to say we'll only deal with you. We're not going to give you a monopoly. We're going to also sell, or, or not sell, I should say, license this research to companies in India so that it's accessible in other parts of the world. We're going to also have you compete and bid with another US-based pharmaceutical corporation, like that they can do this. They just, it, they've been told they can't and that the pharmaceutical industry lobbyists will say like, oh no, 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 the, we need these exclusive licenses to encourage innovation. It's required, you know, otherwise everything will drop to a standstill, but they don't pay for the R&D. They don't actually pay for that innovation. What they do is pay for a license so then they can market it and sell it. And I think the thing that we know and it's so obvious once you sort of allow, <laughs> understand that it's actually not that complicated, that there is another way to do this that it will allow access to far more people. And in a global pandemic, that is what we need. I was doing a little bit of research. Too, as you do. We, as I do. I'm, a, I'm just I'm a researcher. <laughs> tuberculosis is an interesting one to me. I didn't know that a million people still die of tuberculosis around the world every year. That's right. just shocking. The reason for that is because there is no free tuberculosis vaccine. And that research has been paid for kind of a long time ago. Mm. But hearing you, I'm thinking, so this must be the licensing and the marketing, right? That are keeping the costs up. People are still distributing it because it's still an absolutely widespread disease around the world. Well, and when you have monopoly rights on mm-hmm. that drug, you can charge whatever you want. And even though the it's pu- fu- publicly funded right and there's all kinds of like we can go and that information because it's publicly funded is available we can find out okay well which labs did this go to if it's a if it's a state-run university like you can look up the the you can get the receipts right like you can find mm-hmm. out what whose people's salaries are and stuff like that as soon as it goes and is licensed over to pfizer or um, Johnson and Johnson or something like that is opaque. We have no idea what they're spending on R and D if it's a legitimate cost, right? Like if it's inflated after that, we trust them. And if you've looked at the history of pharmaceutical companies, like what reason do we have to trust them? 
Like, what think about Martin Screlly. Think about I mean, Martin Screlly. Would you trust that guy? The cost of, of the EpiPen and the response. Like, if you watch the news and watch that, the people in charge of that company explain why they inflated the cost of the EpiPen. Do you trust them that their R&D costs, or it's not even R&D costs, their marketing costs are reasonable? Did you read that he recently requested to be let out of prison so that he could uh, save the world from COVID? Yes. <laughs> yeah. While the same bold thinking that got him in. <laughs> right. He thought that would get him out. Yeah. Wow. So if you could make a, I'm not asking you to make a prediction because that's ridiculous, but what are your thoughts when the vaccine arrives? And let's just talk about the United States. Do you see that as being something that will be wholly subsidized to offer effectively free vaccinations throughout the United States? You know, what is the what is it going to look like for the poorest in the USA when it comes to but when it comes to the COVID vaccine? Oh my gosh, it depends on the administration. Mm-hmm. This is a good reason to vote, right? And it depends on also other funders. So it was um, actually the Salk, the polio vaccine was developed by Jonas Salk, among others, and hugely important, right? That people, kids had been dying and been disabled by polio for decades and decades and decades, and nobody could figure it out. And um, he finally was able to develop a vaccine, and that was actually funded by a private foundation. Yeah, but it will take political will to make sure that it's not something that is just uh, used for some company, corporation making profit off of it. So that's why I think there needs to be both pressure on places like the research labs, but also on the policymakers. Is there any scenario where it would seem realistic that there would be some United States citizens that would not have viable access? to affordable COVID vaccine that would actually leave people out? Yes, that's totally possible. If you look at the history of how medicines are available to the public, it's completely possible that people who are not insured will not have access. I mean, even what's happening right now with testing, there are a lot of people, a lot of people who don't have access. Okay, so what have you guys in your involvement, what have been some of your biggest surprises in this process, hopefully positive surprises. And how do you see the success so far of your efforts, of, of all of our efforts? There's 300 people working on this. What's the status? Give, it, give me an update, a success update. Well, one thing is we have two goals, really. So one goal is to make sure that the vaccine and the treatment and diagnostics and everything are accessible. Um, But the second goal really feeds into the first, and that is we want to train uh, and help build a movement. And so that we have a bigger group of people who feel confident and have skills that they can use to help um, make um, do this work into the future, right? And um, new kinds of people who are new to this, all of these issues. And so on that front, we have seen just such amazing things happen. Some of the, what you talked about, which is having, first of all, having strangers collaborate online to do anything is a pretty amazing thing when it works. Mm-hmm. Um, but also you have people who are learning so many different kinds of things. You have people new to this access to medicines work um, who come maybe from a creative field who are learning all about how things like patents and licensing works. You have people who are very familiar with that stuff who are learning how to do more effective activism through these very creative and fun ways. So we're seeing a lot of evidence of that happening. And we've just had dozens of actions that people have created to go and approach researchers and these publicly funded institutions, including universities. And again, our colleagues at UAAM who have been doing this kind of work for decades to try to pressure universities to make their work, their research freely available, say that just in sheer numbers, the amount of people that we've been able to approach and get responses from have have been, it's like years of work that has happened in a couple of weeks. So that's pretty amazing to us. What are some of your favorite early actions that you've that you've come across in the group? Steve, you want to talk about the plants? So my favorite 
Hi. is one that I was the most skeptical of at first. It was a group that said, we're going to take plants and we're going to plant them in the ground and then we're going to dedicate them to researchers and ask them to take the open COVID pledge. And then we're going to post on social media. And I was like, uh, what's the connection like between the plants and the researcher? I don't get it. And then the whole like, and then we'll put it on social media, just having worked on this, these kinds of you know, artistic activist projects and stuff, there's like a mistake that people often make, which is, and then we'll put it on social media and then da, 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 and then we win. And it's like, yeah, whoa, 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 whoa. There's a big gap between where you put it on social media and how that results in a win. So I was kind of like, I'm not sure about this one. Um, but the nature of this thing is like, it doesn't really matter what I think. Like if they feel like it's a good project, they're enabled, they're able to do it. And um, and fortunately, it does work that way. And they did do it because they were absolutely right. And it gets the most, that project gets the highest level of response from researchers. And over time, after seeing it worked, it made me understand better why the, the thing I didn't understand at the beginning, yeah. which is like they see this fledgling plant like as some sort of uh mirror of themselves and that there is and there's this expression of support and like we're going to nurture this plant and that's the way that we want to show that we're supporting you it's like real simple and basic and sort of sweet in a way and then that it there's a real intense sincerity right like they're all handwritten cards you can they look handwritten they're colored with crayons sometimes um, in a few videos, there's like an eight-year-old girl that's sit sitting in front of the plant, like making the dedication and reading from a little card. And it's just like the cutest thing. And that sincerity and the incredible sort of personal cue in the eyes, and I'm looking at you, Dr. Hamilton, please, you know, that is super effective. And so uh, there's a lot of lessons to be pulled from that right. and little sort of elements that we can use in other actions. But that, that one actually is one of my favorites. Rebecca, do you have a favorite? Oh, well, um, I, I actually- I have a lot of favorites and I'm not asking you guys to call out ones and then I people know. listen to this and go, well, why not your favorite? I'm just, just, some, just something to, to uh, tease people with that are listening to this. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was going to say, I am reminded of the one from your group, actually. And so these um, baseball cards that, well, they're kind of like baseball cards, but they feature the researchers with their stats, like, and the stats being research that they've done and also have like um, shared with the world to make it accessible. And I think that that's, it's very cool because it taps into the kind of culture of these universities that can be very competitive, right? And so you have two schools who are competing each other with each other in um, the sports arena, but then to like make these baseball cards about these researchers at different schools competing as if, you know, the competition is about how accessible to the public do you make your research about COVID and to celebrate them again, make them into these heroes, I think is very cool. And just like, you know, there's something cool about having this little card that people can get in the mail to have this physical object. I love that. <laughs> that's, that's uh, well, I'm involved with that one. So I also appreciate that. I don't know where the grant is for that. Mm. Waiting. I have to, yeah. I'm going to have to nudge, nudge that organization a little bit. I want to uh, take a minute to give a quick shout out to our, we have a lot of sponsors. So to just take a second. And those are the members of the Super Nice Club. So if you're listening to this, even if you don't know it, you're a member. Your support of this simple idea to make the world 10% nicer is really appreciated, and it's why this podcast exists. Thank you, Super Nice Club members. And that's going to take me into the Super Nice Club challenge. Did I did I prep you guys on the challenge? No. I didn't because you're creatives. It's great. You're going to get this on the fly. The Super Nice Club challenge is something that guests ask in each episode of the listeners, just something a challenge that they can do in their life uh, to make the world a little bit nicer. So yeah. uh, what I would say go, go. is one is fine. No pressure. Imagine all the people that you know and are friends with and think about who you know that might be a good signatory of the open COVID pledge. Is that like someone who's working in a makerspace and making their own personal protective equipment to distribute? 
and like came up with a design that works on their 3D printer, like you can ask them to sign the open COVID pledge. Or do you happen to know someone or have a relative or your friend's mother-in-law works for a pharmaceutical corporation? Like show it to them. And, um, or you know someone that works in a university, right? Like, so just like think about all the people you know and all the people that they know. And I will tell you, if you think about it long enough, you will come across someone that would be a good candidate for this. And so um, we had one of our participants just post on Facebook, do I know anyone that works in a pharmaceutical company? And they're like, yeah, oh yeah, my old friend, right? So um, opencovidpledge.org. You can sign on as an individual too. Oh, so if you URL? just feel like, yeah, I think that's up? a good thing and I want to add my name to it, go for it. But um, spend a mo- just take a minute and, and think if you know anybody that could be really strategic. That's the challenge. Try to find some people to sign the open COVID pledge. And if you do take the challenge, let us know about it. Post something on Facebook or Instagram, tag Super Nice Club, tag Steve, Rebecca, any yeah. of the organizations. Yeah, yeah, you put it on social media and then you win. Put it on social media and tag stuff. It'll be awesome. That's the challenge. Wait, but does Rebecca get to do a Rebecca. request? Oh, I have one. I do have oh, one, actually. I have one. Okay, cool. All right. So, you know, one of the things that we've been doing that we've been, it's been really fun and has been very successful with Free the Vaccine mm-hmm. is this idea of honoring people with plants or with baseball cards. Maybe, maybe I would challenge the listeners to honor someone that you care about, make an award for them. Like Ooh. next Zoom call that you have with your grandmother or your sister-in-law, make a little award for them. Like, you know, like best apple pie baker and present it to them in a little ceremony in That's the Zoom awesome. call. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then tag um, us. What? <laughs> I said, and then yeah. tag everybody. Yeah. And then tag Rebecca everybody. Is yeah. very good. Yeah. At I think that, that will go a long way to make that the world 10% challenge. nicer. Okay. Okay. So come up with a cool award to give to somebody in your life for just how great they are or yeah. some facet of their life that, that you really appreciate and admire and present it to them. That is a fantastic, very super nice challenge. I love it. Great. Okay, what's your what's your question, Rebecca? Well, I did want to know what your experience has been as a participant in the Free the Vaccine Project. What's it been like for you? It's been great. It's been, well, it's been great and it's been frustrating. Um, mm. It's been frustrating because the amount of time <sighs> I had to spend on it in the beginning was more, and then I had a bunch of work, fortunately. So then I wasn't available for a while. And then, so I've been, it's been sporadic in my, in terms of my availability. The great part about it is this, it's that first of all, I get to work with not just the two of you, but all kinds of really interesting people. And we, the way the thing is set up, you guys, you can go in and check the bios. There's a lot of information about everybody and what they're doing. And you can go down a rabbit hole and realize that you're working alongside of people who've done amazing things. Matter of fact, um, podcast guest just two episodes ago, Prince Ardathio. Yeah, uh, met through this project. So that's just one example, and there are many others that are that are doing really incredible work. And that has led me to being able to realize that even when I'm not actively involved, I'm working with a caliber of people who pick up the ball and they keep running. As as somebody who's worked as a as a creative director and worked with teams and worked with other creative directors for years. This is a bone of contention for me in that I often find myself uh, wishing that other people would would chip in their weight. And when they don't, you know, projects grind to a halt. I've found, at least in my group, even though we haven't gotten the cards off the ground yet, everybody is active and I'm learning a lot from people. We have weekly calls. And in those weekly calls, I'm like, hmm, that's a really interesting way to organize people. That's a really interesting way to organize this kind of stuff. So I've been learning a lot about how you guys organize activism. Great. That's good to hear. Thanks for being Um, a part of it. Yeah, I look forward to uh, every call. Yeah, great. So thank you two for (laughs) being on and for doing the work that you do. How do people get involved? If they want to come in and they're really interested in this and they want to be part of the the helpers here, what, what can people do? So you can go, the website is freethevaccine.org. 
And on that, you can sign up for the newsletter. That's where we will announce when we are able to open up a next round cohort, which we're hoping we'll be able to do in August or September, which will be another online organizing like this, like we're doing right now. But of course, And what you just heard, tragically, was the sound of a band of rabid anti-vaxxers bursting into the room, both rooms of Steve and Rebecca, simultaneously a, a joint operation with precision timing. And we lost, we lost our guests. We did. Um, that's not what you heard. Trying to be funny. What you actually heard was the sound of amateur hour podcasting uh, versus something like, you know, the Joe Rogan podcast, or even better, the Sam Harris podcast. Our streaming platform just, we don't know, we lost the end of the of the interview. But I'll tell you what Rebecca was talking about. She finished up with, hey, we're going to have another opening for artists and activists. But also, if you go to our website, if you go to freethevaccine.org and take uh, action through the Take Action tab, there's a lot you can do. There's a lot of social media help that we need. There's a lot of people that need to be pressured to have you reach out to them. So take a look at freethevaccine.org to get involved with this, all right? Because a free vaccine for everyone is super nice. A vaccine that comes out that isn't available to everyone, that's not even nice. That's not even nice. That's, that's a non-starter in my view, and I hope in your view. Rebecca and Steve are really incredible. Check out their website, the Center for Artistic Activism at c4aa.org c4aa.org check out what they're doing and Steve Lambert he has a great website it's fascinating visitsteve.com check that out and thanks for listening to this podcast thanks for listening to nice work I hope you get inspired a little bit listening to these podcasts if you do spread the word pass them on more listeners is great thanks again to everybody in the super nice club if you're not a member of the super nice club all you have to do is just check us out on Instagram or Facebook under Super Nice Club and hit like. You're done. You're in. It's that easy. And then just try to be 10% nicer. We also have a website, superniceclub.com, where you can find really sweet streetwear that gets you into really great conversations. It does. You wear a Super Nice Club hat or shirt. People ask you what it's about. And then all of a sudden you're talking about, whoa, what would a nicer world look like to you? And these are important conversations. So thanks for listening. Any feedback, any guests you'd like us to have on the Nice Work Podcast, reach out to us on Instagram, on Facebook, direct. You can just call me. My number is 707-235-1026. Say, hey, Todd, here's what I think you're doing right and wrong and you can improve. Here's what I think you should have on the show. Thanks, everybody. Stay nice.